So it's April 5th, 2019 at the Contemporary Men's Ashram in Auckland, New Zealand. Or what do you call this place? Do you have a name for it? Huh? Padravali? Padra. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that, that, that's cute. So you wanted me to talk about the stages of bhakti? Is that what you wanted me to talk about? Yeah, you gave a talk at the loft, actually, to a similar gathering, but it was a mixture of men and women, and you gave a nice um, little bit about what, especially you talk about the stages they're in and the stages and the experiences of the stages, especially at the early stages, of course, and where that leads to, and sort of, yeah. Because uh-huh. a lot of them here, most of them are... You know, get their first time through the books and sort of just coming in and settling and you know obviously they're going through the, those early stages and, and talking a little about what, what, what they've been through, where they may be at and where, what may be coming up and, and, and an idea that they're in there's progression and what's coming up ahead. That was sort of an idea I had in my mind but open to... Okay. Well, first of all, I've identified over 20 different descriptions of the stages of bhakti and they don't all correlate with each other. So one can understand the progress of bhakti through many different lenses. Can you all hear me well? Yeah. And I've seen many people try to correlate one description with another, but it seems to be rather forced. And in thinking about it, if you think about just physically, if we're going to talk about somebody maturing physically, when you turn from a child to an adult, so... There's the physical body, there's intellectual maturation, emotional, social. There's so many different ways in which we become an adult. It's not just physical, yeah? And those don't all happen at the same time. So some people mature physically way before they mature emotionally, and some people mature emotionally before they mature physically, intellectually, or socially, yes? So you, you can look at different lenses... And it's the same with spiritual advancement. You can be looking at different things. So different explanations of advancement in bhakti seem to be looking at different things. And then you, the most, most holistic explanation is what we call Shraddha to Prema, which goes from initial faith to full love of God. That particular description seems to encompass most of the others, but not all the others. And you can't put everything in there. I mean, in fact, I'm very interested in this topic. And this, this book is a description of the stages of bhakti. But this starts at a somewhat advanced level. So the very first verse here already assumes that you have a guru and you've taken initiation. And so it starts from that platform. And it goes through the different obstacles and stages that you face to perfection. So that's really what this book is about. It's, it's a guide. It's a step-by-step guide for a practitioner of bhakti. But it does assume that you're not a beginner, 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 beginner. Now, I've taught this book even to people who, that's their first time at a Hare Krishna temple. And there's things that, that they're able to relate to on the path. And then... When I wrote this book, this is a novel. So it's a it's a fictional allegory. I don't know if you've ever read Siddhanta, um, Siddhartha. Can you read Siddhartha? Okay. 
So something similar to that, or The Alchemist, something similar to that. It's an allegorical book of progression to bhakti. And this book, the last part of this book, comes from here. This book has four parts. The last part comes from here. The first two parts are taken from the Bhagavatam, and they basically just deal with a person in materialistic life who's seeking for spirituality. And the third part comes from Chaitanya Charitamrita, and it's about the different paths of enlightenment and choosing the proper path. So this book really is a story from beginning materialistic life. What are the stages you go through to attain ultimate love of God? And I wrote this in language for the general public so that it would be, although it's very, it goes to very high topics, it's, it's the kind of book that even somebody who doesn't know anything about Krishna consciousness, and even some people who aren't interested specifically in Krishna consciousness have enjoyed, and devotees have also enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in what is the path and what is the progression. Now, having said all that, bhakti doesn't need to be a path or a progression at all. It can be instantaneous. Srila Prabhupada would often say that you can attain to full Krishna consciousness in a moment. So, although there are so many descriptions of the path, it doesn't have to be a path. Because ultimately Krishna consciousness is already within us. It's already who we are. It's not something Rupa Goswami says to be gained from another source. So it's, it's more, when we're talking about a process, we're talking about a process to waking up to who we are. I, I met a devotee once who... Um, had had amnesia, and for two years he didn't remember who he was. It's kind of an interesting story once he finally remembered who he was. So he had been coming to the temple interested in Krishna consciousness. And then he saw a picture of Lord Nasingadeva at the temple, and he just decided he was going to pray to that form of Krishna without really knowing much about Nasingadeva, and said, I just want to surrender immediately. Please do whatever you have to do to do that. And the next thing that he knew... He woke up on the side of the road without knowing who he was. He didn't know his name, anything at all. But somehow he thought, I need to go to a Hare Krishna temple. And that's what he did, and he joined the movement. And he was practicing Krishna consciousness for a couple of years without any knowledge of his background. And then after he took initiation, his spiritual master said, you should really try to regain your memory and find out who you are. And eventually he was able to regain everything but that one week between the time he prayed to the Singadev and ended up on the side of the road. He was never able to recover that memory. But the point is that we all have an original spiritual identity and we've just forgotten it. It's already there. It, it's not exactly something we have to go on a path to achieve. But most of us do go on a path to achieve it. Most of us are not courageous enough to immediately surrender. We might think we're doing that. We might think, oh yes, I'm surrendering everything immediately, but generally, most of us don't. So then another thing, not only could we skip the path entirely and immediately wake up to Krishna consciousness, also we can skip parts of the path. So this is nicely explained also by Rupa Goswami. That it's possible for somebody to have a shadow or a reflection of love of God that very, very quickly, by association with great devotees, becomes the real thing, without going through all the intermediate steps. 
so that's also possible. Another thing that's possible is the opposite situation, to get stuck at some part in the path for a very, 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 very long time. Even lifetimes. I mean, a person could get at a particular point and just not progress. Materially, we've seen this. Materially, we've seen people who, it's like, psychologically or emotionally, get stuck, yeah? You know, someone they love dies, or someone they love betrays them, or there's some, something happens, and they get emotionally and psychologically stuck there. They just don't progress. Or some people who still act like their children, right? I'm sure we've all met people like that. They may be in their 40s or 50s, but they act like they're three months old. Sometimes they even run countries. <laughs> you know, so there, there, are, there are people who are, we won't say anything more about that. So there, there, are, there are people who, who seem not to have progressed past certain kinds of development, even materially, and that also happens spiritually, people get stuck. So you can skip stages, you can get stuck at a stage for a very long time, you can not go through any stages at all and immediately come to perfection. Another thing that can happen, and this is all very important before I explain stages, is you can be at one stage in one thing in another stage in another thing. So as I said, there's, there's over 20 ways of describing the process of bhakti. And by some ways of describing the process of bhakti, one may be a beginner, and by other ways of describing the process of bhakti, one may be very advanced. Just like materially, somebody could be intellectually mature, but physically immature. So that, that also happens. And even if you're looking at holistic ways of understanding the progress in bhakti, Still, there may be some ways that a person, mostly at this stage, is acting at a lower stage, or some ways in which they're acting at a higher stage. Or there may be some moments when a person genuinely has realization at a higher stage. Or some moments when a person acts like they're on the lower stage. So I'm giving you all this background because we're, we're people and we, we really can't fit people neatly into little boxes. We can't fit ourselves or anyone else neatly into a little box. We're, it's just, that's not real. So you may ask, well, in that case, why did so many of our teachers, acharyas, give these stages at all? Because they generally apply more or less. And they're helpful. Just be careful that you don't take them as absolutes, that you don't take them, everybody has to go through these stages like this. Because if you do that, you, you may end up, you may end up in, in a false position where you're not acknowledging that there's something you need to take care of that's lower or something that you can do that's higher. Is that clear as like a basic theoretical framework. Okay. So what I think I'll do is I'll first talk about um, just Shraddha to Prema because it's so holistic and then I can briefly go through some of the others. Is that all right? So the first stage, Shraddha, Shraddha means faith. And for most people, this stage of spiritual realization means I believe that there's God. 
I believe that there's a spiritual path. I, you know, I believe that there's a God and I believe that you can find him. But I don't particularly do anything about it. Which is the vast majority of people who profess to be religious on the, or spiritual on the planet. Now, the vast majority of people say they believe in God. But what do they do about that belief? How do they act on that belief? Is minimal or non-existent. You know, I go to church on Christmas and Easter. Or I have some, you know, crystals on my shelf or something like that. You know, little angel figurine in my car. <laughs> so, yeah, I try to be good to people. Right? I mean, it doesn't... It, it's like saying, yes, I believe that there's, you know... I believe that Wellington exists and I believe that there's a road I can drive to get there. Do you ever go there? No. But I believe that it exists. I, I've seen it sometimes. I've seen pictures of it. You know. Maybe I drove on the road for one mile on my way to something else, but I never actually went out. You know. So that's, that's just faith. And that, on that stage... There's not really any obstacles or difficulty because you're not really doing anything. I mean, I suppose there might be some cognitive dissonance that you say you believe in something that doesn't inform your life very much. But for most people on that stage, they're hardly even aware of the fact that they're not acting on their belief. All right, then you have what's called in Sanskrit sadhusanga. So sadhu means saintly person and sangha means to associate. So it's at that point that you really start making some change in your life, particularly with who you hang out with. So you start changing your friends. You start having some friends who are interested in spirituality. Now as soon as a person does that, some of their friends or family will reject them or they will reject some of their friends and family. Generally. So there you start having an actual test or actual sacrifice or, or difficulty or obstacle. Because you, you start wanting to be with people who are into spiritual life, which means you, you're probably going to start talking about spiritual things. You know, your interests start to change. And you haven't really started on the spiritual path, but you're starting to be with people who have similar interests and maybe some of those people are on the spiritual path. And some other people in your life will probably not be happy with that and say, you know, we just don't have the same interests anymore. You know, you're always wanting to talk about reincarnation or you want to talk about God, you want to talk about philosophy. And, you know, sure, we can talk about that for a few minutes, but then, you know, don't you just care about who won the latest cricket game? And, and, it, and, and people will, some people will just jettison you and say, you know, I really don't think that we have anything in common anymore. And sometimes you'll jettison people and just say, I really don't think that I want to be with this person anymore. And sometimes the people where the relationships break more or less were people that you were very close to, and so that can be quite painful. It starts becoming an actual... You're starting to actually make decisions in life about your spirituality. And some people just stay at that stage. They just, you know, have friends that are spiritually minded, but they don't really commit to a path. They don't really commit to any kind of a practice. 
So then you have, the next step is when you actually commit to a practice. You commit to some genuine form of spiritual practice. And the, you know, here we're looking at stages in bhakti, but this applies more or less to any commitment, any firm commitment to any genuine spiritual path. That you say, okay, you know, I'm going to start walking on the path. I'm going to start living it. And at first it's usually an unsteady commitment. Maybe some days you read scripture, some days you chant, some days you don't. Maybe some days you chant one round, some days you chant four rounds. Some days you go to a temple, some days you don't. But it tends to be at first unsteady. And when it's unsteady, there are some symptoms. So one symptom is false confidence, where a person thinks, oh, I am now really, really spiritual. So I remember quite clearly when I was at university, and I actually started to make some commitment. I mean, looking at it from where I am now, the kind of commitment I made then was really meager. But at that, at that time, compared to where I had been before, it was substantial. Compared to the commitment I make now, it was, it was almost meaningless. But at that time, relatively speaking, it was huge. And I was genuinely a lot more spiritually committed than anybody in my immediate environment. So I had this idea that I was very, very pure and very, very spiritual and very, very advanced. Because again, I was, it was relative. I was looking at the people around me and compared to them, that was a fact. You know, I, I got a real shock once I actually moved into an ashram. But anyway, that's one of them, the false confidence. Another is difficulty with controlling the senses. So one will think, all right, you know, I'm going to give up these things. And, and, but, but one struggles with it over and over and over again. And difficulty with, so that's difficulty with giving up negative things and then difficulty with keeping positive things. So both, you know, you, you try to give up negative things, you try to take up positive things, but it, it doesn't work very well. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And another is not being able to decide, you know, don't want to be single, don't want to get married, don't want to live in the West, don't want to go to India. You know, what, what do I want to do? And, and being very, very focused on the externals. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone like this yesterday who was completely on the externals. Should I stay here in New Zealand? Should I go to America? You know, should I get this kind of job? Should I get that kind of job? And thinking that one's spiritual life is all about that. That spiritual life is, is all about the externals. And at that point, to some extent, that's sort of true because a person is making external changes in their life. And so it really seems to them that spiritual commitment has, is, is practically all wrapped up with their external behaviors and their external living situation. You know, that was the point where I decided, okay, I'm going to drop out of university and just go live in Russia. And it, it, was, it was that decision that I'm going to, you know, change the geographical location of my body. And I'm going to change instead of studying in university, I'm going to be doing service at the ashram. But that becomes the, the whole spiritual focus. And there's a lot of indecision. You know, should I do this, should I do that? But it's all externally focused. 
So gradually, one's spiritual practice becomes steady. And as it becomes steady, one of the things that a person does is take initiation and make a firm commitment, say, okay, I'm doing this. Now, it, it, it sort of shocked me years ago, maybe I'm just really naive, that a lot of people who take initiation don't think of it as a lifetime commitment. I was at some gathering somewhere in some country. I travel so much, it's very hard for me to remember exactly where I was. But it was some gathering, I think in a devotee restaurant. And there were some of the people there, I overheard them talking to each other. One of them said, yeah, you know, I joined the Hare Krishnas for a while just to check it out, even took initiation, got a spiritual name, that was kind of cool, you know, and I got bored of it. And I thought, wow, there are people who do that. There are people who take initiation just as a way of checking it out. You know, that's part of their checkout ritual. Uh, but the idea of, of steady practice is that you say, okay, I'm really making a commitment. This is something I'm going to do the rest of my life. And your practice becomes steady. So from going from unsteady practice to steady practice... What starts happening is that one's deep internal attachments, awareness, shifts. And until one takes up a spiritual practice, that doesn't really happen. If you just are associating with spiritually minded people, there's not a whole lot of internal changes going on. Although you might think there is. You might think, oh yes, I'm so spiritual. But once one starts getting into a, a, pra a regular practice, and as that practice becomes more and more steady, then what happens is our internal attachments, our internal conditioning, and our real spiritual nature start becoming obvious to us. We start learning things about ourselves that we didn't know, and that we really can't know without taking up a genuine spiritual process. Now, it is possible, because Bhakti Yoga isn't the only spiritual process. There are four categories of genuine spiritual process. Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, Gyan Yoga, and Dhyan Yoga. So it is possible to get this kind of understanding through the other three sorts of spiritual processes. Each of them, in our novel, we go through this, and each of them has some dangers. Each of the four main paths have some difficulty. And one of the, the I'd say at this point, the most dangerous path for people would be in Jan Yoga or Astanga Yoga. Because Astanga Yoga reveals one's inner consciousness mechanically by sitting a certain way, breathing a certain way, you end up getting an understanding of how you're conditioned and who you really are. But the Asanga Yoga system is supposed to start with Yama Niyam. It's supposed to start with purification. But a lot of people today don't do that. You know, they're eating meat, they're drinking alcohol, they're having so many casual sexual relationships, and then they go for a 10-day... Vipassana meditation retreat where all of a sudden they're being vegetarian and they're taking a vow of silence and they're being celibate and they're meditating for 10 hours a day in a mechanical system. 
And the big secret in the yoga world, there was a big article about this in the New York Times, is that some of those people go psychotic. Why? Because stuff is revealed to them that they're not ready to handle. It's, it's a system that they weren't qualified for. So all the systems reveal stuff about yourself. And I would say that this particular stage of spiritual life is the most difficult. It's the most difficult, it's the most scary, and it's the stage at which the most people either get stuck or turn around. It's the barrier between <coughs> being an ordinary religious person and actually being realized. So you could take up some sort of spiritual practice and think that, you know, you're very you're a very devout whatever, Catholic or Hindu or Muslim or whatever. But if you don't actually face this inner stuff, you stay on a materialistic path. So what gets revealed when one takes up a spiritual practice in a steady way is two things. One positive and one we could say perhaps negative. The positive thing is that one starts seeing that one is not this body, not this mind. One starts getting a, a real sense, a realized sense that one is a soul. One starts being able to observe the body and the mind as something separate from oneself. It's at this point where the various urges of emotions and desires, mental desires, physical desires, one starts seeing as separate from oneself, and one starts seeing that one has a choice point. That one is not just overwhelmed by anger, or overwhelmed by lust, or overwhelmed by grief, without any choice on one's part. But these things actually have a progression, and there's points at which you can say, well, I'm, I'm, really, I'm just going to watch this. I'm not going to indulge it and nor am I going to hate it I'm just going to watch it and it will pass through me so that's some understanding that I'm a soul one, one starts feeling a, a very deep peace and a very deep joy as a soul so detachment from the world uh, an ability to control the senses in the mind not controlling this way but controlling through detachment as an observer so you could say that that's on the positive side. And particularly in the path of bhakti, what starts becoming revealed at this point is some real attraction for Krishna and some, some feelings of, of affection and interest in Krishna. On the, and I hate to use positive and negative, but I'm not quite sure what else to use. On the so-called negative side is that one starts to understand how one has foolishly and unnecessarily become attached to so many things in this world. And I'm not just talking about like a car, but to become attached to trying to enjoy this world in, in an artificial way that's harming oneself. And, and to put it very crudely, one starts to see that one is chosen to be evil, that one is an all-good, all-pure being who's chosen to be evil. And when one starts seeing both of those things simultaneously, that I am, I am a pure soul, I have nothing to do with this world, and I am without any good reason or any good logic, I am choosing evil. And the reason that this stage is difficult is one actually sees that one is choosing evil. Because most of us don't believe that we're evil at all. Like, at all. We just don't think that we're evil. We think that we're very good. 
and we're you know we do things that are wrong and, and hurtful but we have good intentions and we just kind of mess up and we just we just didn't know or we didn't understand but if we would have known and we would have understood we wouldn't have acted like that and we, we don't see ourselves honestly at all in materialistic consciousness like not at all we don't see ourselves honestly in terms of being having a spiritual identity and we don't see ourselves honestly in terms of the fact that we are choosing to be evil we are choosing to enjoy evil actually so that becomes revealed to us and if I often wonder if someone had told me this when I first took up Krishna consciousness, is if it would have made it easier or harder. And I'm kind of divided about that. I mean, for most studies about human psychology, if you know the difficulties you're going to face, it's actually easier. So therefore, I prefer to tell people. But I didn't have a clue that I was going to experience something like this. I really I didn't get that. And... When it first started happening, when I first started seeing, wow, you know, I have, I have some pretty nasty motivations for what I'm doing. I, I, I couldn't deal with it. And I just kind of, no, 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 that, that's not, I don't want to be like that. that that's, not, that's not me. That's not me. It took, took quite a while, and it takes most people quite a while before you can really look at it and go, oh, wow. I'm really, I'm really got a lot of stuff going on here that's, that's not me and that's really nasty, but that I have been holding on to. And to actually face it and to actually acknowledge it, and instead of denying it or repressing it, to genuinely let it go. If you think of the difference, like if you had a really messy closet, let's say, that you'd just been throwing things into for a few years, and it was just, it was just a mess. You know, and sometimes you'd go in the closet and find something, but usually if you'd open the door, you just go, uh, and then you just close the door again. And you figure if you keep the door closed, you don't have to deal with it. But sometimes you've got to find something in there, so every once in a while you have to open it. And then you find something as quick as you can, and you close the door. That's very different from actually opening the door and looking at what's in there and throwing out all the stuff you don't need. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. So just closing the door and saying, no, 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 I don't have a messy closet. So what, most, what happens to most people is when this stuff surfaces, you know, you got all this junk in, your, in your, the closet of your heart, is they just close the door. They no, 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 I don't. I don't want any of that junk. I actually don't want any of that junk. I don't know why I'm keeping it. I actually don't want it. But you keep it. You follow? Mm-hmm. Why are you keeping that junk in your closet? Oh, I, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I don't really want any of this. But you're lying. Because you don't actually go through it. You follow? But if you go, well, if I really don't want that junk in my closet, then let me open up the closet and look at the stuff. And see, what am I keeping there? So this state is called a Narjana Vritti, where you're getting rid of the unwanted things. And it's really very much like opening up some old closet or some old suitcase or something and looking at all the stuff that you've been keeping and going, what is this? What is this? And you look at it and you go... My God, that's envy. Why am I keeping that? I'm looking at it and saying, oh, I can see why I'm keeping that. I'm keeping that because I'm enjoying being envious. And I'm thinking that if I'm envious, that I'll get this and this thing that I want. Wow. Whoa. I've been intentionally keeping this, thinking it's necessary and enjoying it. 
and you look at it and you go, well, that's disgusting. I, and then you genuinely don't want it anymore. Not closing the closet door and telling yourself you don't want it, but you genuinely don't want it anymore. And you just let go of it, and then it, it's gone. So many, many, many people resist doing that even once. Now, the good news is that most of our most of the evil in our heart and most of our bad habits and most of our material attachments get removed from our heart by the process of bhakti without our conscious awareness and participation. And St. John of the Cross called that the dark night of the soul, a phrase which is widely misunderstood to mean some sort of terrible suffering. But what the dark night of the soul really means is basically it's like a doctor comes and operates on your cancer in the middle of the night when you don't even know about it and you wake up with the cancer gone. And that's a very common occurrence in bhakti. It's very, very common that someone just starts chanting Hare Krishna and they just take up bhakti and all of a sudden they realize, well, I haven't wanted to smoke a cigarette for the last week. I didn't even think about it. So that, that's a very common occurrence. That, that attachments just go, kind of, and you don't even really know how they've gone. But with some of the difficulty, you have to face it. And people who aren't willing to face it stay as ordinary religious, which is what gives religion such a terrible name in the world. Because the majority of people who get past the initial faith stage and the making friends with spiritual people to actually practice some path never go deeply enough into it internally to face any of this stuff or face very little of it. And so they, they remain full of all kinds of nasty frankly evil, I mean, there's just no other nice way to put it, stuff, while externally acting as a religious person. And this happens in our Hare Krishna movement, too, where we're not, it's not like just because it's the Hare Krishna movement that we're immune to having people like this. That, that's not the case. I mean, one difference is that we actively, intentionally, explicitly tell people that they need to go through this. So at least we're pushing people and pulling people and assisting people and helping people to go through this internal purification. So you're much more likely (laughs) to be able to go through it than if you're in some sort of religious system where everybody's just kind of cool with being superficial. Anyway, the first couple times that you go through something like this, it's intense. It's really intense because we have all this pride about, I'm such a good person, and on top of that, I'm even really spiritual. <laughs> and, and then you face this, and you, you're like, wow. Wow. But once one faces it and admits it and, and, and lets go of it, it's such a relief. It's like, whew. It's just gone. And after a while, it gets easier and easier and easier and actually more and more and more exciting. Because as we let go of more and more in this stuff, we see more and more that I'm a pure spiritual being. I'm not, I don't have any evil in me at all. This was all just external. It was all just superficial. Now, once one gets rid of about 50% of this stuff, then one starts awakening to what generally at that point, not for everybody, but generally, one starts awakening to specifics of one's spiritual nature. One starts seeing not only I'm a soul and, and I'm all good and I'm all pure and I'm 
full of power and full of freedom, but starts getting a particular feeling towards Krishna in a very specific way. That, that starts to wake up. And generally it first starts to wake up in a kind of vague way. Oh, I think I'd like Krishna as my friend, or I think I'd like Krishna as my son, or I think I'd like Krishna as my master, or as my beloved. And that generally starts to wake up. And once that starts to wake up, the whole process of bhakti undergoes a, a subtle but radical shift. If you could think of this from a materialistic point of view, so let's say you're going to school and just because your parents have told you to go to school and you have to go to school according to law and you really don't care about it at all. And you're just doing your work just because that's just what you've got to do. And you're kind of convinced that by going to school you'll get a good job and you'll make more money and something useful. But you're convinced mostly intellectually. It's a theoretical conviction. Okay, going to school is good for me and I have to do it anyway. All right. And then at a certain point, you study something that you really love. You know, you fall in love with chemistry or you fall in love with art or, or something. And you're like, wow, I really like this. Maybe you really like the teacher or something where, where you start working on, you know, what you want to do as your career. And it may be first in a very general way. Oh, I just like science. And gradually it becomes, you know, I think I like microbiology. And pretty soon you're studying something because you really love it, and you want to study it. Yes? You know, or, or in another sense, you may have some idea that, well, you know, when I get older, I'll get married, I'll have a family. But at a certain point, you actually find somebody that you fall in love with. And that's very different. It's very different than theoretically, well, you know, you nice to have a family and a career. To having a specific person that, oh, I want to marry this person. I have some attachment for this person. What's driving you becomes different. Does that make sense? So in spiritual life also, at first what's driving us may be, I'm really curious, I want to understand what's going on in the world, or I hope I can become happy, and I'll, spiritual happiness sounds better than material happiness, or I want to get free from distress, I'm tired of so much difficulty. And we get intellectually convinced, wow, you know, this philosophy it answers all my questions and it's really cool. And, and we have some experience of, of transcendence. But then we get to a point that the experience of transcendence is our main motivation. And again, I, I don't like to use the word positive and negative, but for lack of a better term, the motivation becomes more of a, of, of a positive draw rather than a negative push. One starts doing bhakti because Krishna is just so wonderful, rather than I don't want to be an illusion. And you can you can often tell the shift in people's language. So I'm an editor for our Back to Godhead magazine. So we get articles submitted all the time. And a lot of the articles are just what's wrong with the material world. criticizing scientists or criticizing pollution or you know sexual exploitation or animal slaughter and just basically what's wrong with materialistic life and there'll be a little bit there about what's nice about Krishna but it'll be like 80-90% what's wrong with materialistic life and then you have other articles that are primarily about what's wonderful about Krishna so that's what kind of shifts it kind of shifts from what's wrong with materialistic life to what's wonderful about Krishna. 
as, as what's driving one. And what's, one starts being impelled more by one's own genuine spiritual experiences and realization rather than intellectual conviction. Now, some aspects of the process of bhakti also change at that time. Anyway, so at this point, then one's practice is not only steady, but one's faith becomes very firm because one's faith is, is, is really rooted in one's own practical experience on a regular, daily, even minute-to-minute basis. And at this point, one gets great pleasure from the activities of bhakti far beyond what one got in an unsteady state because one is, is at least half cleans in the heart. And so one is able to react as a soul to the activities of bhakti. And at this point, a person doesn't feel... I mean, of course, obviously we need to physically sleep and we need to eat. But a person doesn't feel emotionally or mentally tired in the activities of bhakti. And then the next stage is that one gets very attached to Krishna as a person, so that beginning feeling of how one was attached to Krishna starts developing. And one's relationship with Krishna just becomes more and more relishable and more and more exciting and more and more fulfilling. And then one gets out of the stage of practice altogether and the beginnings of a genuine deep love of God start to manifest. So at this point, a person wants to spend all their time in Krishna's service. They have a, a great love for the holy name. They have a great love for spiritual places. They're naturally very humble. They naturally do whatever is good for them and they avoid whatever is bad for them, not out of some sort of mental trick or some sort of you know, habit planning, or, but just naturally. And then the final stage is full love of God, where, there's, where one is back completely to one's total stage of purity. So that's the, the overall holistic progression. Just briefly, some other ways we can look at progression is one first chance, but one is making all sorts of offenses to the name, has all kinds of misconceptions, is not dealing with other people properly. Then one starts to chant the holy name in a mood to get rid of an offensive behavior. And then one is finally chanting in pure love. Another way of understanding stages is at first a person is thinking, well, God is only in, in, my, in my temple or only in my society or only in my path. He's not to be found in, in, the light, in life in general. And he's not to be found in other paths. So the only place I find God is in my chosen path and during the times when I'm engaged in some sort of ritualistic activity or I'm engaged in some sort of spiritual or religious activity. That's where God is. So God isn't at my place of work. God isn't in the park. God certainly isn't in somebody else's church or mosque. He's only here. So that's the first stage. Then the second stage is where you make friends with anybody who's equal to you in progressing on the spiritual path. You help those who are innocent and curious. You have love for God. And you avoid people who are blasphemous or who are atheistic. And the final stage is that you have absolutely no desire in your heart to find fault with anyone. And you never deviate even one speck from remembrance of Krishna and absorption and love of him. So that's the final stage according to that way of understanding. 
So there's those are different um, progressions on the path. If we look at, at Manashiksha, so the progressions in Manashiksha, as I say, this doesn't start right at the beginning, is first having love for Guru, for the holy name, for holy places, for spiritual persons. Then next giving up our next step is giving up our material identity as a good or bad person in this world, just identifying as Krishna's servant. And the next is being patient, that this is a real deep humility, that whenever Krishna wants to accept me, he can, I'm going to go on serving him, whether he, you know, however fast or slowly he accepts me. Then the next step is avoiding, uh, avoiding hearing and speaking things that will detract from the spiritual path. Basically having purity of sound. So that, I'm sure you've heard and that many people understand that what we think and what we say creates our reality, yes? So it's having a deep awareness of that and having everything that we hear and everything we say be conducive for our spiritual life. Then the next step on this path is our actions. So getting free from actions that are against our ideals. Because for most people, we... We know what we believe in, and we know what is ideal, but we don't always do what we believe. We do things that we know are wrong in the sense that they're against what we want to do for ourselves. Just like how hard it is for people to lose weight, even if they want to lose weight. You know, They want to lose weight, but they eat the cake anyway. Or they don't go to the gym anyway. Right? Or you have a lot of things to do, and instead you watch some stupid situation comedy on television. So to be free from that kind of thing, to have one's behavior in, in line with one's ideals. Then the next step after that is to have one's mentality in, time, in line with one's ideals. So that's, on a, that's a very subtle platform. So it's actually a purification of motivation. And then the next step is to have purity of heart, to basically not desire any sort of prestige or respect for one's spiritual life. Then the next stage after that is, is, is full humility and coming under the shelter of the Krishna's spiritual energy. And after that, it's full meditation on Krishna's personalities and places of pastimes that resonate with how one wants to serve the Lord and then engaging in the processes of bhakti as if one is drinking ambrosial nectar with great taste and great relish. So that's the path outlined here, which is a little different. So, you know, and I don't have time to go over all the obstacles on that. that you can find my classes on YouTube on that, on that book. So we, we looked at, you know, I spent most of the time with Shraddha Prema, but I've also looked at some of the others. So questions? Do we have any time? It's 7.30. I had a question around, um, I, am I just take, seeing men coming in and looking at the mental health of people today, which is getting worse and worse. Often we can find persons with quite severe mental issues, um, and they, their experience of bhakti, even for many, many years with those mental illnesses, can be quite, they're always feeling whatever their mental illness is. Um, Inflicting upon them, and they often feel like they just they can't they don't have control of how they feel and things. So um, often they can be practicing, but experiencing a lot of battle with putting 
themselves into the process in the right way because they don't have they've got a kind of broken mind if you know what I mean um, how hmm, what's the question yeah um, how do you encourage and um, help persons like that who you know, they go through the mechanics of things but they're it's very hard for them to focus on applying the inner well, it's very interesting when, when Krishna is talking about the role of the mind in the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And he talks about how the way that we go into material life is that we first contemplate something. In other words, we give something our attention. And we, we ruminate on it. We feed it. From that we become attached to it. We start identifying with it. We start thinking that it's me. And from that point our identification and our attachment becomes so strong that we basically come under the control of those thoughts and emotions and desires. Which then leads us to anger, bewilderment, loss of intelligence. And falling into a materialistic way of being. And Krishna explains that even, you know, that any of the senses can do that to a person. So I think many times we focus in the Bhagavad Gita on those verses, it's Bhagavad Gita 2, 62 and 63, about how do we become entangled. But I think that I've, I've seen very little emphasis on the solution which is given in the next verse. 264. And it's a, it's a solution that's given throughout the Bhagavad Gita and throughout the Bhagavatam. And I will tell you definitely, absolutely, and without any doubt whatsoever, that practice of what Krishna is talking about there will free you from mental disturbances very quickly. It might take a few weeks or a few months but it's not going to take a few years. And I've seen that it's this, this practice that Krishna gives for reasons that I don't fully understand and I, I don't even know if I'm so interested to understand. We don't often teach them. I don't really, again, know why we don't. Because it's there, and it's there throughout our scripture. It's, it's, and it's a pivotal part of any yogic process. So what does Krishna say in that verse? He gives two things that we should do. And then he says what will happen. So he says, on the mental platform, be free of attachment and aversion. On the physical platform, regulate your senses. If you do those two things, you will receive the mercy of the Lord. Bhagavad Prasad. Now again, this, this idea of detachment of neither attachment nor aversion is repeated throughout the Bhagavad Gita and throughout the Bhagavatam. To be detached from honor and dishonor, happiness, distress, fame and infamy, friends and enemies, heat and cold, success, failure. It's all over the place. And when Arjuna says in the sixth chapter that it's very hard to control the restless mind, Krishna says, undoubtedly it is, but it's possible by suitable practice and by detachment. 
And later in the 14th chapter, Krishna says, one who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they appear, no long for them when they disappear, knowing that the modes alone are active. Remaining always neutral. Now my guess as to why we don't teach this is we somehow don't think it's part of bhakti. That's my guess. My guess is that we think that this kind of, of mental practice is something done only in Jan Yoga or Gyan Yoga or maybe even in Karma Yoga, but we just don't seem to understand that it's also part of bhakti. Now, this sort of mental neutrality happens automatically in bhakti. That is definitely true. A few years ago, I was doing some study about meditation and I, I read a very, very popular best-selling book by a Buddhist meditator. And a lot of the stuff that he was saying that he did as a practice, I realized that just happened to be automatically in bhakti. As I was saying, a lot of these things happen automatically. A lot of things you just do bhakti and they're just there. They're just there. You don't even, you don't even know how you do it. You just, all of a sudden, you have this neutrality and this equilibrium. But also, there's some deliberate practice. Both. A lot of it will happen just, just by chanting Hare Krishna, just by being in the process of bhakti. A lot of this mental equilibrium will come. But we are also enjoined by Krishna himself over and over again that as part of bhakti, we should also have a sadhana or a practice of mental equilibrium. And Krishna says that if we do that along with regulating the senses, that he will give us his mercy. What that means is that we're not going to achieve full mental equilibrium just by our own effort. We'll achieve quite a lot by our own effort, but our effort attracts the kindness of the Lord. Just like if you see a child trying to lift something heavy, you naturally go and help them, yeah? Now, if a child just comes to you and says, will you pick this up for me? You might not, but if you see them trying to pick it up, you naturally go and help them. It's just natural. By the way, it reminds me of something really funny that I read many years ago in a book about how to be a good wife. I read this back in the 70s. And one of her advice was, if your husband doesn't fix anything around the house, you try to fix it, and when he sees that you can't do a good job of it, he'll step in and take it over. And do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, you, now you know. <laughs> but anyway, Krishna's like that. When he sees us trying... Because he says, that material nature, material illusion is very powerful. So are we going to always be able to remain natural and detached toward material illusion simply by our own effort? Probably not. We'll be able to do it to some extent by our own effort. But our effort will attract the Lord. So if we just say, I would like to be detached from the mind, I would like to understand that I am the observer of the mind, and I am not the mind. I would like for my mind not to control me but I would like to be able to observe it and to choose how I want to deal with it. If we just say that, but we don't actually make have the mental practice of equilibrium, Krishna's not as inclined to help us. Does that make sense to everybody? You know, when I, when I taught kids, so sometimes you have a kid comes up to you and says, I don't know how to do this. And you say, well, did you read the instructions? No. Well, go sit down at your desk and read the instructions. So they read the instructions. I didn't know how to do this. Did you try to do it? No. No. Well, go try. And then when they try, 
then you're actually in a better position to help them. Yeah? They're more receptive to your help, you're in a better position to help them because you can see what they've understood and what they haven't understood. So what is this mental practice? Physical practice, we can understand, regulating the senses. That's, that's pretty simple. Like after vegetarian food to Krishna at certain times, I eat it at certain times. I wake up at certain times. I have, I have some kind of a routine. I have some kind of a schedule that I do for my physical activities. But what is this mental practice? It's, it's actually not a difficult thing to understand. And this is this mental process of, it, of being free from attachment and detachment is something that people can do even if they're not on the spiritual path. So it doesn't require one to be extremely spiritually advanced to do it. If you're not on a spiritual path, you're not so much going to attract the mercy of the Lord and you'll keep running into that limit according to your own endeavor. Like I found that interesting when I was reading this book by this Buddhist that he was able to get this mental equilibrium up to a point, and then he kind of reached a, a ceiling that he couldn't get past. I found it fascinating. So it's basically allowing the thoughts and the emotions and the desires to flow through you. Not contemplating them and not stopping them. The people generally do materialistic people generally do, is they have one of three responses to the thoughts, emotions, and desires that flow through their mind and body. Because our thoughts, emotions, the thoughts, emotions, and desires that flow through the mind also affect the body, yeah? I mean, what we call fear is a particular, it's actually a particular chemical reaction that's taking place in our body. Yes? Our bodies are designed so if there's a threat if we walk down the street and there's a barking dog you know, bearing its teeth so our, our body is, is designed thankfully to respond with fear with what we, we put a label on it as fear where the the blood is pulled into our arms and legs and to the, the stem of the brain. It's pulled out of our prefrontal cortex. We basically become more animal-like so that we can respond instantly to this threat. That we can, you know, fight the dog. I don't know if you read about it, but it was a couple months ago. Some hiker in America was attacked by a mountain lion and he killed the mountain lion with his bare hands. Did you read about that? You know, he finally like gets out of the out of the trail and gets picked up and taken to a hospital and and nobody believed him and they actually went and they found the mountain lion and they were able to see that he had been he'd strangled the mountain lion. He had bites on his face and stuff. So you know, one don't try that. I <laughs> said it was a fairly young mountain lion. I said if it had been a full-grown one, he probably wouldn't have been able to do it. But anyway, we're, what, we're, what we're biologically designed to do is if there's some snarling dog, we have the energy to fight the dog or to freeze or to run away. They say flight or fight, but the freeze is another option. Like sometimes deer now, it's just freeze. 
So that, that's part of our biological system. But we also go into that fear response when there's no snarling dog. We may go into that fear response when somebody insults me. Or when someone who we plan to meet at 5 o'clock cancels the appointment. And we think, oh, maybe they don't like me anymore. Maybe I'm not going to get the job. Or, you know, we go into some sort of fear state. Yes? As if there's a snarling dog in front of us. So there's this biochemical reaction that happens in our body. Where our, you know, our body is designed to, it stop, our digestion stops. Our higher order thinking skills stop. We're, you know, everything goes into the arms and legs and, and just instinct. I read a fascinating book about anger and the author was a scientist, but he got involved in this because he was, I think, in Spain with his daughter and some thieves stole the daughter's wallet. And this guy had no training in martial arts and he fought off and won like five guys. And he was thinking, how did I do that? And how did I do that so fast without even knowing what I was doing? Right? But again, that that response can be triggered by something other than thieves stealing your daughter's wallet. So when, when some response comes into our body and mind, whatever it may be, one just watches it. One doesn't identify with it. One doesn't say, I am angry, as if that's my identity. You know, who are you? Hi, I'm angry. <laughs> you know, we say that, right? I am sad. But instead of I am, or even I feel angry, oh, there's anger in my body. And even a step back from that would be, oh, okay, my heart's beating really fast. I'm, the body's breathing really fast. My body feels kind of hot. Brain isn't quite working. You can even break down what are the sensations. Oh, that's interesting. Look at that. Now, what really helps is to breathe slowly because slow breathing communicates to your body that there's no danger. That helps bring the blood vessels back to your brain. And you just look at it. Well, that's interesting. A lot of people find it, it helpful to take the thought or the feelings or the desires and think of them as some sort of a creature. I just had the, just recently had an experience where uh, I was visiting one temple and there was this one man, I'm guessing he was in his 20s. And he was having a very angry and animated discussion with a woman about my age that somebody had insulted him. And he was so upset. And he was, you know, when there's a lot of anger and upsetness, you talk about doing all kinds of crazy things. I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to forget everything. And I'm not going to talk to anybody anymore. <laughs> you know, and I didn't really know the guy. He'd been in a, in a drama that I'd seen a few days before, and he'd been really good in the drama. So because of that, I, I felt, and I was just passing by, and because of that, I don't know, somehow, I got involved. 
And at first I was speaking to him in terms of logic and reason, which had no effect at all. And then I said, why don't you see the anger as a creature? Look at it. Calm down. Like, that fast. Just, I thought, whoa, that's really powerful. Like, I, like for me, fear is this, I don't know, I have no idea why. It's kind of this blue, this little blobby creature with long blue hair. Like you've seen like a sheepdog that, that looked like they have dreadlocks. Yeah, so that's, he's about this big for me. and he's, he's got blue dreadlocks. You know, or like that's why I say people think of it like some, some barking dog you pass on the street. Some stray dog. Just goes past you on the street. And, and you're not going to pet a stray dog. That would be really stupid. You know, and if you feed the stray dog, it may not be stray very long. Right? And nor do you take rocks and throw the rock. You don't kill the dog or maim the dog. You just leave it alone. And it'll walk past you. So not attachment or aversion. One who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear. Oh, there's grief. What I started to say before was what materialistic people do is instead of observing thoughts, feelings, and desires and letting them just pass through them, they tend to either get into them. Yes, that's my thought. That's my emotion. That's my desire. They contemplate them, as Krishna was saying. They contemplate them, they get attached to them. Their attachment increases. They become frustrated by them, they lose their intelligence. So that's when you express your emotions, you express your thoughts, you know. Whatever you think, you say. Whatever you feel, you express it. You act on it. You act on your desires. Of course, if we did that completely, we would be animals. Or they try to repress them or suppress them. That may be conscious or unconscious. You know, okay, this is something I don't really want to act on. That would be dangerous if I act on this. If I actually say this thought, you know, my family will throw me out. My friends won't talk to me anymore. Or I'll get arrested or something. So we take it and we squish it. And we have to keep holding it down. We're using energy basically to hold it down. Or we try to escape it and just forget that it's there. You know, alcohol, drugs, TV, movies, computer games. Or being busy all the time. Busyness can be a kind of intoxicant. Then you just forget what your thoughts and feelings and desires are. You know, just try to escape them. You're not really pushing them down. You just sort of become numb to them. And eventually they reassert themselves. If we have a habit of suppression and repression, that's the cause of a tremendous amount of physical illness. That's the cause of like chronic fatigue, chronic pain. A lot of chronic mental diseases are caused by repressed emotions. And if we express them, then that's basically a catastrophe. We lose our friends and families, we may end up in jail. You know, or we just spend our lives escaping them and pretending that they're not there. So that's generally what materialistic people do. But a spiritual practice is you just observe them. And if there's stuff that you've been repressing, you let it surface and leave. Like stuff you've been stuffing in your closet. You let it come out and go. You don't hate it. 
You don't contemplate it. You can observe it with some curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. But you don't contemplate it. Well, yeah, I have a right to be upset because she said this and he said that and he did this and this happened and that happened. And so I, I, you know. Now, why don't we do this? We don't do this because we think, well, if I don't contemplate and hold on to my anger at so-and-so, then I might forget that they cheated me out of $1,000 last year and I might give them another $1,000. But that's ridiculous. You can remember that they cheated you and not give them another $1,000 without holding on to anger against them. You know, so this is, it's absurd. It's not necessary. We're not that stupid. We don't, we don't need to hold on to any of these things. So if one practices that and practices it and practices it and practices it, along with regulating the senses, one will get the mercy of God. And these things will just be removed. The mental problems, even a lot of the physical problems people face will just be removed. They'll just be gone. Now, even people who are not on a spiritual path can do this, by the way. Even gross materialists can learn how to do this. For sure. Absolutely for sure. And when you do it as part of a spiritual process, then definitely your spiritual progress is greatly accelerated. Will it happen on its own without a deliberate process, yeah, but it might take a very, very long time because some of this stuff has to be done by deliberate process. A lot of it happens just automatically, without conscious awareness, without conscious participation. But some of it requires conscious participation. Bhaktivinoda talks about this in regard to the demons, but that's another topic which I will not get into tonight. It's metaphorical and it would require far too much explanation. Is that all right? And Krishna says, it is undoubtedly difficult, but it is possible with suitable practice and detachment. So it is difficult. And the first times that one tries to practice this, one will probably not do a very good job of it. And will say, that's way too hard. But you just keep practicing. It is actually our natural state. The natural state of the mind is to be peaceful and calm. The natural state of the mind is not to be disturbed. The mind is a product of the mode of goodness. So it is something that if we practice it, eventually it gets easier and easier and easier and easier. And eventually it just becomes what we're doing. And the times that we fail become rarer and rarer and only more and more extreme things cause us to fail to do this. And even when we fail, we go, oops, I just contemplated again. Or I just repressed again. Wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. Let, let's surface that thought, that feeling, that desire. Surface it now, okay. There we go. Don't repress it. Okay. And if we've been repressing and suppressing stuff for a long time, some of the stuff that surfaces may be really big and ugly. It may not be just a little blue guy, but it may be like some huge monster that surfaces. And it may rage for even an hour or two. 
You can just watch it. You can rage if you want to. One way I think of this is um, when I was running a school, I had this kid come who was a real problem kid. Six years old. And he'd been the kind of kid that his parents had let him do whatever he wanted all the time. All ways. All he had to do was throw a tantrum. He was six. I mean, two, three-year-old throwing a tantrum, but six all the time. He just threw a tantrum, and then they gave him whatever he wanted. So he was really difficult to have in school. So we had a program that the children had to attend the morning program, either at home or at the temple, and his parents would bring him to the temple, and I would take the kids in the morning. So we would go in the temple room to greet the deities. Yeah, you all went to the temple for greeting the deities. I would assume. So he said, I don't want to go in. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't leave you outside by yourself. I have to go in and watch everybody else. So you're going to have to come in with me. I, I'm sorry. I'm responsible for you. I can't just leave you outside. And he said... If you make me come inside, I'll scream. I said, I don't care. You can scream if you want to, but you can't be outside. And that was such an astonishing thing to him. He ended up going in the temple room and he walked over to his mother and said, I knew I said I could scream if I, if, if I wanted to, and she wouldn't care. He was just so completely taken aback by that concept that I would just be totally neutral to his screaming. I would neither indulge him for his screaming, nor would I punish him for his screaming. He could just scream. So, of course, he didn't scream. So our, our thoughts and our emotions and our desires are just like that. If we just say, you can scream if you want to, I'm not feeding you. I'm not going to really pay any attention to you, you know, except to say, okay, you exist for some reason, there's some reason why these emotions and thoughts are there in the body, they were originally intended for my protection in some way, and that's kind of cool. Um, but you can scream if you want to, I'm not feeding you, sorry, you don't belong here, and nor am I going to kill you, nor am I going to punish you. At some point, yeah. Is there anything else anybody wanted to say before we end? Yes. Um, to build on that, I wanted to ask about um, battling with say, uh, disorders, like mental problems, and but in terms of trying to take more shelter of a particular service to help, like as a cope, as a coping. Which, which, along with the you know mechanical means. Just make sure that you're not taking sh shelter of busyness. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean. Okay, busyness is an escape. Right. So be careful that in the name of service, you're not using busyness as an intoxicant. Now, there are some severe mental disorders for which probably some chemical medication is in order, at least in a until a person is manageable. 
I'm not suggesting that people don't use any kind of chemical. But mental dis I, I have seen people with serious mental disorders cure them through proper practice of yoga. And what you may find is by doing this sort of mental practice that gradually one's need for medication or other things decrease. I mean, another thing that's very helpful is chanting japa as meditation. To really go into a meditative trance state when one is chanting japa. It's also extremely beneficial to have the, the mind as far as possible really absorbed. I mean, that's all useful for people who don't have mental disorders too. It's not like these things I'm saying are good for anybody. I mean, in one sense, anybody who's not on the spiritual path has some kind of mental disorder. Probably used to say everybody is more or less crazy. So, I mean, if, if I'm thinking that I am this body, that's, that's an insanity. Like if I think I'm Napoleon. So it's the same thing. You know, I'm thinking I'm a, I have an identity that's not mine. And if, I, if I'm identifying with the thoughts and the emotions and the desires of the mind, that is craziness. I should also mention that sometimes mental disorders are due to disturbances of other entities. Intoxication allows an opening for entities to disturb us and become attached to us. So that's also a factor. Not for everybody, but it can be a factor. To deal with that in the same way? Well, certainly that's very helpful. I mean, sometimes you may want to you may want to take some help from people who are experienced with dealing with that kind of thing. And that that sort of situation is probably true a lot more than people think it's true. I mean, I met one devotee who was a medical doctor, worked in a hospital. You can imagine in a hospital, there's probably a lot of nasty entities floating around. And one day out of the blue, he became mentally ill. Like, one day, just poof. And when he told me that, I'm just thinking, this is an entity. You got attacked by something. You didn't go from just completely stable person to a completely mentally unstable person. There's certain things one can do that opens, that makes, especially intoxicants, make one receptive to these things. In our, in our Christian conscious movement, we don't often have persons saying, I can help you with possession, whatever you call them. You take shelter of persons who experienced outside, maybe? Um, Christians generally have quite a lot of those things. They do have Christian some. groups? I mean, We definitely have people within our movement who have some skill in, in subtle energy work mm -hmm. and can sense that kind of thing. 
I know of some who are, you know, really solid devotees and also very skilled in that kind of thing. Was uh, this asking about Shilma you mentioned? Yes. She said it should be with the devotees also, right? And so I was just asking is like so generally what we are always thinking about Krishna to be try to be more in love with him. So but it should be start by loving the devotees, isn't it? You know, we're all individual. How it starts is gonna be individual for each of us. How it starts is going to be individual for each of us. Some people may love the devotees because they love Krishna, and some people may love Krishna because they love the devotees. Um, so what, what exactly, I mean, I'm not getting the point where I should understand what exactly. I'm not satisfied with the answer, actually. Okay, that's fine. Sorry. You don't need to be. So I'm just trying to find out where we can I, I find so what, what exactly I mean is like, so if you are focused about Krishna, it means actually loving everywhere, everyone? Yes, when you love Krishna, you love everyone. So it's same. Yes, but how, but like, like Srila Prabhupada was asked by my father, my son was sitting in my lap, and my, my father asked Prabhupada, will loving her son help her to love Krishna? And Prabhupada said, no, but loving Krishna will help her to love her son. Now, if I love the devotees in relation to Krishna, that helps me to love Krishna. And as I love Krishna, I end up feeling love for his devotees. So it's, it's very it's feeding each other. I mean, Prabhupada also told my father years before that, my father said, I'm coming to the temple to see my daughter and son-in-law, not, not to see Krishna. Prabhupada said, yes. He said, they are loving Krishna. And you are loving them, so two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So, those appear to be opposite things. Loving your son doesn't help you to love Krishna, but loving Krishna helps you to love your son. And if some devotee is loving Krishna and you're loving them, two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So it depends on the nature of the attachment and the nature of the love. Is that clear? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a question about karma yoga, and if you could help just to try and explain that, um, what karma yoga is, and because quite often I hear, or I'll be speaking to other devotees, and they'll maybe be doing so, something, and say like, "Oh, I'm doing karma yoga," and it's and it's like sometimes I'm confused about. What actually is karma yoga, and how do we know if we're acting in karma yoga or bhakti yoga? Yeah, what I did in the novel is I have them go to a city where in different parts of the city they're doing karma yoga, yan yoga, dan yoga, or bhakti yoga, which I call devotion connection, action connection, knowing connection, and mastery connection. So karma yoga is basically, I think it's explained interestingly enough. I like the explanation in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, which isn't a chapter about karma yoga, it's a chapter about bhakti yoga. But where Krishna is talking about that if you give up the fruits of your action, you attain peace. Karma palatyaga, chagat ante kalevaram. When you give up the results of your action, at the end you attain peace. So the concept of karma yoga is, first of all, you have to understand karma. You can't do karma yoga unless you can do karma. 
And frankly, most people in 2019 can't do karma. So karma means that you understand what is pious and proper activities according to scripture. I mean, really, like, there's hardly anybody on the planet who's doing that. Seriously. So that means you understand, you know, your nature, your career is matched to your nature, you're in the proper stage of life according to your age and temperament, and you're doing everything according to scripture for all of that. But instead of doing that to be happy in this world and to go to heaven, you're doing it for the purpose of enlightenment and liberation. So that basic concept is not that hard to understand. It's like I'm being a good husband not so that my wife will love me and have sex with me and make me a nice dinner, but I'm being a good husband that by doing so I can be free from the material world. Now, karma yoga is generally done with the concept of God as a universal form. With that, I am a part of the universal body. I mean, and so many people talk about this. They talk about the universe, right? So many spiritual or quasi-spiritual people. And they talk about the universe. So we used to talk about the universe, that God has a form as the universe. So I'm doing my job as a, as a part of the universe, like my my stomach, my heart, is doing something as part of my body. And instead of doing something for its own sake, the stomach is working for the benefit of the body. You know, if my stomach cells decide they want to work for themselves, then what kind of cells, then what, for themselves, then what kind of cells do they become? Cancer. So if the, if the stomach cells are working for the good of the body, so karma yoga is like that. But generally, karma yoga, you're not understanding God as a person. And your interest is your own salvation rather than love of a person. Now, if you start doing that for the person God, not for salvation, but to love him, then it goes into the, it can either be mixed karma and bhakti yoga, karma misra bhakti, or it can be pure bhakti, where you're doing those things as a service. So that's a subtle difference between karma yoga and bhakti yoga. But a gross difference between the two is in karma yoga, the activities that you're offering to the divine have to be the activities that you would be doing in scripture according to your karma. And in bhakti, that's not true. In bhakti, I can offer a whole range of activities to Krishna. I don't have to have everything perfect according to Shastra, which is a really good thing because right now that's pretty hard. Is that clearer? I think so. So, if you're, um, so if I take, for example, my working situation, if I'm doing work, but you know, say you offer your results, so you give money to the community or you give money to Krishna. Does that still come under karma yoga? It depends. So what kind of work do you do? Uh, engineering. Do you consider that you're doing something that you love and that you're good at? Is it really your nature? Or are you just doing that because for some other reason? Um, it suits my nature quite well. Okay. So let's say that you're working properly according to your nature then you'd also have to be doing engineering according to other principles of Varna Dharma. 
So you'd have to make sure that you were in a work that was completely honest, which is probably difficult at the present time, where there was no harm being done or very little harm being done to other humans or animals or the earth in the course of your work. Is that the case? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. So then it doesn't strictly come under the category of karma at all. Because, because karma, you're working according to your nature. The work also has to be honest work. Then you'd be using some of your money to give in charity, not just to the temple, but you'd be giving in charity to people who are less fortunate as well. And you'd spend some time in some sort of spiritual practice. And then there's also um, rules about how you cooperate with other people and other jobs within the society. So if you were doing all of that, but you said, okay, I'm going to be an engineer, I'm going to sacrifice the results of my work for some spiritual purpose, and I'm not working anymore. I mean, I have to keep some money to live, obviously. But I'm not working anymore just to make money or to become a famous engineer or because I think if I'm a pious person, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm offering my work to the divine. I'm offering my work to the benefit of the planet and the universal body so I can get salvation, so I can get liberated from the material world. That's karmiyoga. Now, if you're working as an engineer in bhakti, you'd not only be giving some of your money for the purpose of bhakti, you'd be using some of your talents, your engineering talents, directly in Krishna's service. And at every moment when you're working, you would be offering what you're doing to Krishna. Not just the salary you get at the end of two weeks or a month or something like that. But you'd be connecting everything, your ability, the light in the room, the light on your computer screen, the ability in others, the intelligence in others, the air you're breathing, everything, you'd be connecting with Krishna and offering it to him. You'd be doing everything for his pleasure. Then you're completely in bhakti. If you're thinking, I am an engineer, but I am doing this for Krishna's pleasure, then it's karma measure bhakti. You're mixing bhakti and karma. Because you're still identifying with the work. In bhakti, you're identifying as a soul. That, okay, I'm a soul, but this is the nature of my body and mind, and I'm offering this to Krishna every moment. Now, there's a, a kind of a, a level right below bhakti that's not really karma yoga, but it's right under. In the 12th chapter, where Krishna, Krishna talks about Krishna karmani, where I'm doing work for Krishna, but I, I'm not in the practice of bhakti. So if you're not, you know, worshipping the deity and chanting japa every day and offering your food, you're, you're not taking up the regulated practices of bhakti. But you do some work for Krishna. You offer some engineering service to the local temple and you give some money to the temple and you sweep the grounds. You do some work for Krishna. That's not karma yoga, and it, but it's like a preliminary stage before bhakti yoga. It's kind of like a preschool. Sorry, just Does that make it clearer? Yeah, that's very, very good. Thank you. Um, and just so I am clear on when you say offering it to Krishna, um, so if I'm at work, is that in one sense if I'm just trying to remember Krishna more and to think of Krishna, or do you mean offering it in a way that the actual service that I'm doing at work, I'm kind of linking it to Krishna so it's... Um, well, you'll see your real work is something quite different. First of all, you'll see that your real work is to spread love of God. 
to develop love of God yourself, which means you're remembering Krishna while you're working. That's all the time, anytime, while you're doing anything. So what you're doing is, is not the issue so much, whether you're driving your car or you're at a job or you're brushing your teeth. But am I linking with Krishna now in as much love and affection as I can muster? And then to try to give that to others, and it may be to try to give that to others just by giving them some prasadam, or just treating them with basic human dignity, but to please Krishna, not to be a good person. That Krishna would be pleased if I'm if I open the door for this person. Krishna would be pleased with me if I treat this person with respect and dignity. Not I'm treating this person with respect and dignity so I can say yes. I'm good. So in that way, offering everything you're doing to Krishna. And thinking my real business at work is actually to spread love of God. And as far as the work itself, then as far as you possibly can in the present society at the present time, have what you're doing be beneficial to the planet and the universal body. Because that's it's God. It's at himself. He is the universe. It is one form of God. So that is a service to him. Just like, you know, my, the little cells of my stomach and the little cells of my brain, they have their own little life, but they're also serving me. So you have your own little life. You have to eat. You have to have a place to sleep. So my little cells, they each have to eat and they have to reproduce and they have to rest. But they're also working for my benefit. So can I use engineering for the benefit of the universal body? That Krishna should enjoy what I'm doing. Both. That I'm here. My real business is to spread love of God. My real business isn't to be an engineer on the soul. And I should be using every moment to develop my love of God and spread it to others. And then in my role as an engineer, am I contributing positively to the good of other people, to the good of the animals, to the good of the planet, to the good of the universe? Because that is God. The universe is God. And again, the karma yogis are doing that because they want to get liberated from the material world. And we're doing that so Krishna will smile. You know, when my stomach's happy, I, I smile. Yeah, don't you smile when your stomach's happy? Yeah. When my brain's happy, I smile. I'm happy. Thank you, brain. Thank you, stomach. Thank you, lungs. We appreciate. Yeah, I hope you appreciate. Hope you don't just take all the little cells of your body for granted like you're some dictatorial slave driver. Digest, you slave cells. They're all souls, you know. They're all living entities working for my benefit. I mean, they don't know that. But I can still be grateful to them. Is that all right? Yeah. And I think we're supposed to eat now, yes? Yeah, I think...